You must stay on the path. Do not leave it. If you do, you'll never find it again. No matter what may come, stay on the path. Allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is V. What? Volatility, representing risk and uncertainty, getting busy inside, options activity. Fresh out the frying pan into the fire, traders betting, I'll beat the underlier. Flyer than stock paper bearing my name, I got the hottest tickers in the game, wearing my chain. The what? Volatility, not beta, not gamma, not Dow theory. I'll cause a risk reversal faster than re-re at the half. Tear up your graphs, dance on your charts. You think you got smarts? I'll tell you what I'll do, take you back to the rules. Relearn those fundamentals, the investing essentials. Balance risk versus returns, limit your concerns. Diversify the pie, protect your downside. Understand the trend, even when the trend's not your friend. Recognize, realize, re-examine, and reassess. We ride these rails together on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. Did you feel that? That was a little risk reversal on the tracks last week. Yeah, a major U.S. equity market sputtered after a sizzling January as sellers were back in style. Rallies faltered and pessimism around the Fed's next moves and corporate earnings clouded the picture as the Nasdaq sank 2.4%, the S&P 500 dropped 1.1%, and the Dow lost about 0.2%. U.S. Treasury yields moved higher and the U.S. dollar climbed against the euro and the pound in a typical flight to safety. And prices for major cryptocurrencies declined with Bitcoin trading below 22000 for the first time in three weeks. Nothing too dramatic, maybe just a gut check for investors who have ridden into 2023 on some sizzling gains for tech stocks and crypto, and maybe a sinking realization that the Fed's going to have to do more to cool down key parts of the economy, like the labor market. Fed fund futures tell us that financial market participants are trying to zero in on where the Fed fund rate's going to peak next year, and that number's been really hard to pin down. The Fed's dot plot, the most boring yet the most important chart in the capital markets today, shows the Fed funds rate peaking at around 5% this year and not coming down at all in 2023. But futures traders don't seem to want to believe that. Fed fund futures, as of Friday, were pricing in a peak rate of 5.17% and a year-end rate of 4.89%. It doesn't sound like a big difference, but even those microbips make a difference to big asset allocators. Remember, risk assets are allergic to high rates, and high interest rates look like they're going to be around for a while. Still, more and more investors seem to not want to believe that if you look at what's happening inside the options market, which leads us straight into our big three for the week. Number one, options activity is at a fever pitch right now, especially around tech and growth stocks. More than 40 million call option contracts or bets that the underlying stock will rise in the future changed hands in a single day last week, the highest level on record and almost topping 2022's daily average volume for puts and calls combined. Overall activity topped 68 million contracts, which is also a record according to CBOE Global Markets. Traders are chasing those eye-popping gains from tech stocks that raced out of the gates this year, hoping that trend's going to continue. According to Deutsche Bank, calls on tech stocks have dominated puts, which are bets the underlying stock's going to fall in the future at the highest rate in nearly a year. And it's not just the pros playing the game. According to JP Morgan, individual traders have ramped up purchases of call options on single stocks to the highest level since August. Yikes. Hey, let's be careful on it. Thanks, Lieutenant. We will be. Number two, 
While more individual investors and traders are wandering into the options market in search of short-term gains, some of us are also not holding on to stocks as long as we used to. According to new analysis from the online broker eToro, the average holding period for U.S. stocks was 10 months in 2022. This is down from more than five years back in the 1970s. To be sure, the holding period for stocks has been on the steady decline for the past 50 years as more discount brokers entered the market and more retail investors began managing their own accounts. As trading and transaction costs decreased to basically zero, we traded more. We got active. But more activity means more volatility and add in a few dashes of uncertainty, a global pandemic, and a few manias, and you get a lot more portfolio churn. Take last year, for example. The gap between the best and worst performing sectors last year hit a record high and active funds bested passive funds for the first time in years. Being proactive can pay if you know what you're doing and you use proper risk management techniques. But it often does not, especially if you're incurring transaction costs, taxes on short or long-term capital gains, and you churn yourself out of the market by overtrading. We've been seeing it in the pain trade this year, as a lot of investors who may have missed the 14% rally in the NASDAQ and have been trying to time their way back in, many of them through the options market, as we just discussed. And number three, you know what we haven't really had in a while? A big, juicy IPO. Last year's bear market kept the lid on hot new public offerings, which hit their lowest levels in 2022 since the year 2016. There were only 181 U.S. IPOs last year compared to 1,035 in 2021, and I can't even name one of them. But a little steam in the engine room of the equities market is reigniting the flame for new debuts. Last week was the busiest week for IPOs since October, led by NextTracker, a solar energy company that raised close to $640 million and sold more than 15% more shares than anticipated. A slew of other renewable energy companies are slated to make their debuts in the coming weeks, thanks to some of that government money from the Inflation Reduction Act, which was disguised as a climate bill. But there's also several restaurant companies trying to take their seat at the public market table. Panera, Cava, and the Rhone Group, the parent company of Fogo de Chao, the Brazilian steakhouse chain, are also poised for the public markets later this year, according to various reports. And Chinese companies are also coming back to the U.S. public markets and listing on the New York Stock Exchange. If the IPO market really does open up, we're likely to see companies like Stripe, Epic Games, and Fanatics testing the waters in the second half of the year. Game on. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and inflation and interest rates are still on the menu. We're going to get the latest consumer price index for January on Tuesday and the producer price index on Thursday. Don't be surprised to see an uptick from December for both. Higher oil and gas prices are likely to blame. So on the consumer side of things, let's see what the core CPI looks like. That strips out food and energy costs. But we can't ignore food prices. They keep rising. And we know it was a big weekend for chicken wings and avocados. Speaking of avocados, since I am a black belt in guacamole and we're coming off of Super Bowl weekend... Important to know that roughly 250 million pounds of avocados are shipped from Mexico to the U.S. every year during the four weeks leading up to the big game. That's one of the reasons that Avocados from Mexico always advertises during the Super Bowl. Cryptocurrency regulations will be back in the spotlight this week. On Tuesday, the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs will hold a hearing on cryptocurrencies and digital assets. We know the SEC is circling the wagons around crypto brokers in the wake of FTX's collapse, and now Congress gets to weigh in. Earnings season continues with reports from the Coca-Cola Company, Airbnb, DoorDash, Marriott International, Cisco Systems, and Paramount Global, among others. Earnings reports so far have been kind of underwhelming. For the fourth quarter of 2022, the blended earnings decline for the S&P 500 is a negative 4.9%. If a negative 4.9% is the actual decline for the quarter, according to FactSet, it will mark the first time the index has reported a year-over-year decline in earnings since the third quarter of 2020. They fell 5.7% that quarter. 
but it's the future we care about as investors, and companies are not painting too pretty of a picture of what's to come. For the first quarter of 2023, 58 companies have issued negative EPS guidance, and only 13 companies have issued positive earnings per share guidance. And that puts the forward 12-month P.E. ratio for the S&P 500 at around 18. That's just below the P.E. ratio for the five-year average, which is about 18.5, but above the 10-year average of 17.2. So stocks still seem a little bit pricey compared to long-term historical standards. We spend a fair amount of time on this show talking about ETFs, exchange-traded funds, and we do it for a reason. ETFs are becoming more prevalent and more popular every year among both retail and institutional investors. SPY, the Spider S&P 500 ETF Trust from State Street Global Advisors, one of the most popular, most widely held, and most widely traded ETFs, just celebrated its 30th birthday. It was the first exchange-traded fund to be listed on a national stock exchange, and it ushered in a new wave of ETFs that are more liquid and cheaper than mutual funds funds. Today, there are nearly 9,000 ETFs listed around the world compared to only 276 ETFs just 20 years ago. And total assets under management in ETFs at around $10 trillion are slowly but surely catching up to mutual funds where over $22 trillion of our dollars are managed. Mutual funds have their purpose and they serve various purposes to be sure. But the thing about ETFs is that they can be carved up, sliced, diced, julienned, and blended into just about any theme investors want to invest in. You want to just track the S&P 500? There's an ETF for that. Just S&P 500 growth? There's one for that. Just high dividend, low beta stocks? You betcha. Just Thailand? Uh Uh-huh. Crypto? For sure. Short-term US government bonds? You know it. And on and on and on. There's an ETF for that and for more than we've ever thought about. It's a big business and it's only getting bigger. I spent part of last week at ETF Exchange, one of the largest U.S. ETF conferences where ETF issuers show their latest offerings to portfolio managers, financial advisors, and the media. It's a big deal inside the industry, and our friends at Vatify produced this year's terrific event in Miami. I caught up with a couple of the smartest experts in the ETF ecosystem to get a better understanding of where exchange-traded products are headed and why the future of the industry looks unlimited. Todd Rosenbluth, I'm the head of research at Vetify. Right. This is your conference, right? We're here at Exchange ETF. You have ETF issuers, you've got financial advisors, some product people, some big industry people. From your perspective, and you follow this industry closer than most, what's the most important developments that are happening in the ETF world today? I think a few things that are important that's happening in most recent times. We've got the growth of actively managed ETFs. So for many retail investors and their advisors, the way they got exposure to active management was through a mutual fund. But ETFs in general are cheaper, they're more accessible, they're easier to use, there's no front end loads that are tied to that, and they are more tax efficient. You tend to pay capital gains when you buy and sell as opposed to when other people buy and sell. And over the last few years, we've seen firms like JP Morgan, like Capital Group, these are some of the leaders within the actively managed space, they now have a strong presence within the ETF world and they're growing and they're expanding their products. In fact, Morgan Stanley just came out with products tied to Calvert that have long been used by retail investors. So I think active management is one of those trends. And then just where does the market go from here? And I think that still remains a mystery for people who remember how hard a year we had in 2022. We bounced back to start 2023, both in the equity and the bond marketplace. But there's a lot of uncertainty and ETFs, because of the nimbleness that they have, just provide a vehicle to be more tactical if needed. As the Fed shifts its posture, 
as the market adjusts. And so I think those are just some of the trends we're hearing at this conference. Yeah, a few years ago, to even say actively manage ETFs would have been oxymoronic, but there is a lot of active management with ETFs beyond the construction. There's a liquidity aspect to it. There's all kinds of things that active managers have to pay attention to. Retail investors like me and my listeners, we don't necessarily see that. We see the manifestation of that in price. But what's important to know from my perspective or from our listeners' perspective in terms of who's managing your ETF and what they're doing inside of it? What's inside of it is particularly important. So you're right. Things have gotten cheaper. ETFs continue to see lower expense ratios or offer lower expense ratios than before. Now, they have historically been cheaper than mutual funds. But you could build a broad asset allocation approach, equity and fixed income, and slice it in different investment styles for less than 10 basis points. So 0.10 expense ratio, next to nothing, much less than you pay for a mutual fund. But many of these products sound the same, are not actually the same. So how do they define what is large cap versus mid cap? How do they define what is growth versus value? The devil is quite often in the details with ETFs. And until you actually look inside the portfolio, you may not fully appreciate what is in there. So Amazon, for example, is now in the value strategies like the iShares S&P 500 value ETF, whereas ExxonMobil and Chevron are growth stocks within the iShares S&P 500 growth ETF. For decades, that was the opposite of where it is. So you really need to just take advantage of what an ETF offers the transparency to see what you own, understand it, and make sure it still fits in with your portfolio, even if you're not making any changes in 2023 versus 2022. The world turned upside down. Amazon now a value stock and the oil stocks are growth stocks. The world is very, very different today. So you make some good points there and you have to know what's in them. We just recently surveyed our readers who are all individual retail investors. They like putting money to work on their own or through their advisors. And we asked them the most important criteria for them when selecting an ETF. And it was that construction. What's in it? What's the methodology? What's inside? The second one was performance, past performance. And as we know, that's no guarantee of anything, anytime, anywhere. But they care about those two things. Liquidity was not high on that list. An advisor recommendation was not high on that list. Neither was the issuing company high on that list. They're more concerned about what am I buying and how has it done? Are they missing something important in that? Well, I think they just want to make sure they're looking at the whole landscape that's out there, making sure they're not just buying the ETF. I don't think one of their choices was ticker, but people tend to buy an ETF because it's out of ticker. There's some crafty tickers out there. There are some crafty tickers that are out there, memorable ones and ones that tell you the story of what you're getting or what you think you're getting. So just doing your homework the same way that you wouldn't buy a house or buy a car without doing that full level of due diligence or having an inspection or having somebody You can do this all on your own, but just make sure you have a checklist to be able to go through. I love the fact that the retail investor is going beyond expense ratio, is going beyond performance. It shows they're doing their homework. They're visiting your site. They're visiting our site at ETF Trends and other free aspects to be able to learn more about ETFs because know what you own before it's too late. Yeah, that goes for any asset class, but ETFs in particular, because they become so popular at some point, and it's probably going to happen soon. If it hasn't happened already, they're going to surpass assets under management for what exists inside mutual funds. When is that coming? And do we need even more ETFs in this marketplace to fill it out? So it hasn't happened yet. It's probably another five to seven years before there's more money in ETFs so they catch up to where we are with mutual funds. And partially because we have just the 401k, the retirement programs are filled with mutual funds. It's a default option. I own mutual funds 
through that, even though I'm part of an ETF related company, I'm sure many of the listeners continue to have that as just part of what they have. We're going to see closures of products. We're going to see new launches of products. But there are still six and seven times more mutual funds, including share classes, than ETFs. Choice is a good thing as long as you're not overwhelmed by choice and as long as you make the decisions fully informed of the landscape and what's out there. Being invested in the marketplace is probably more important than not being invested in the marketplace. But then once you're in the market, just make sure you're getting what you think you're getting. We also asked our readers if they could pick any ETF, one ETF to hold for the next 10 years. What do you think they pick? I would think it was something relatively cheap and relatively something broad. So I'm going to go with Vanguard Total Stock Market Index ETF. I think that's VTI. That's one of the top 10. One of the top five, in fact. Good choice. VOO. Oh, The top one. And SPY, of course, very popular. But you did see a lot of defense being played in terms of fixed income and dividend-paying ETFs now, too. But always great to have your perspective, Todd. Thanks so much. And thanks so much for the conference. No, thanks a lot. I'm glad you're here. You were on stage. I enjoyed your presentation. I hope more folks get to come and experience ETFs. Thanks, Todd. Brown, I run the ETF market making business at GTS, which is a U.S. broker dealer headquartered in New York. You've been around the ETF industry since it was created. We're talking about 30, 30 plus years right now, but obviously the last 10 years has seen a massive evolution and a lot of inflows from investors, both retail and institutional. From your perspective, what has been the most interesting change over the last two to three years in the ETF ETP universe? That's a great question. It's fascinating to see some of the innovation that's occurring. I think what is most interesting to me are ETFs that are created out of listed derivatives, such as options, and giving defined outcomes. And that's lowered the cost for some insurance type products. But largely, who's coming in? It's the long-only asset managers like Capital Group and Alliance Bernstein and others that are launching an ETF format to address their customers in vehicles that are affiliated with ETFs. Retail investors are become more and more exposed to ETFs either through their advisors or buying it through their own brokerage platforms. Couldn't be easier. And there are plenty of choices out there. Are we at peak ETF or does the world need more ETFs? And if so, why? Well, I think that the world needs more ETFs. They need more innovation. They need price competition. They need new ideas. If you look at fixed income, there are 30,000 QCEPs for corporate bonds. And only a small portion of that is index eligible currently. And when you bring ETFs on top of fixed income, it lowers the prices and drives more liquidity and more price transparency. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to create more ETFs and to bring new ideas, particularly around fixed income and then global macro strategies as well. So I think we're at the top of the third inning, to use a baseball analogy. We're at an ETF conference. We're sitting outside, so that's why we hear the birds and some other folks. But this is a place where a lot of advisors have gathered to learn about ETFs. Advisors are the conduit for a lot of investors to investments like ETFs. And when you think about retail adoption and the retail understanding of ETFs, what do you think is the most important or one or two of the most important factors that retail investors consider when buying an ETF? Yeah, I think first, the market access for retail investors is pretty competitive. To open up a Charles Schwab, a Fidelity, or some other retail brokerage account and fund it, it's really inexpensive to do that. And that's driving household participation. I think for a retail person, all ETFs are not the same. You must do diligence on the composition of the index. 
and have a clear understanding of the investment merit. And so when you're approaching an industry that has $6 trillion in assets currently, it's down remarkably because the market's moved. But $6 trillion in assets, all ETFs are not the same and all ideas have some complexity to it. So proper diligence. One, I think you should read the prospectus. Most of retail investors don't do that. Secondarily, go to some source of education to take a deep dive on the merit to include the ETF in your portfolio. And then fundamentally understand your investment objective. Is it short-term? Is it long-term? And to understand how it works. We just surveyed our readers, and these are individual investors who like putting money to work, about the criteria they think is most important. And number one on that was the composition. What was inside the ETF? They care a lot about that, and they care a lot about performance past performance, which is not indicative of future returns, but also size and reputation mattered a lot to them. But very low on that list was my advisor recommended it to me and liquidity. But for folks that don't understand the liquidity aspect of ETFs, can you just give us a basic explanation of why that is so important? Yeah, absolutely. ETFs are an index and that index comprises underlying components and the liquidity of the underlying components actually makes up liquidity ETFs. And so if you see an ETF that's brand new, that doesn't trade, you think, oh, there's no liquidity there. But if the index has Microsoft and Apple and Google and other heavier traded uh, securities, there's lots of liquidity where you can move large amounts of notional volume inside that trust. So don't just discount an ETF based on the liquidity of the secondary market that you're seeing on a public exchange, but take a deep dive in the index and look at it. If you have an ETF that's comprised of emerging world stock, let's say Vietnam or Taiwan, those liquidity surfaces of that particular stock market is vastly different than if you were trading a European ETF or an ETF based on SP500 or Russell 2000. So have a fundamental view around it is pretty important. And people using ETFs get exposure to a broad array of stocks or themes. It's easy to do diligence on the entire sector and make a call than is to do diligence on an individual company. And that's why ETFs, I think, are being adopted. But for retail folks, just don't follow cocktail conversations and what someone else suggests you do. Do your own diligence and ask questions. In terms of themes, and we've seen a lot of themes here at the conference, there's mode themes, there's fixed income themes, there's short duration themes, there's even some crypto themes creeping their way back into the marketplace. But what are some of the most obscure themes that you've seen that are getting people's attention in the ETF world where all of a sudden there's access to a marketplace that may not have been so available to retail investors? Yeah, just like commodities like gold about 12 years ago, carbon credits. There's an ETF on carbon credits. Esoteric, very stylized, a niche market, but actually it's performing very well. So I, I think that you look at thematic stuff. A couple of years ago, it was all about cannabis. Then it was all about crypto last year, crypto futures inside an ETF. And I would say, or make an argument, that the thematic ETFs is really the momentum trade because everyone's following the sectors and thematics. So whether it's a momentum trade or whether it's a theme where you want to just invest based on your values around, hey, you could like cannabis. There is a lot of production around those ideas and there's a lot of seasonality. The ETF community will wake up and all of a sudden everyone will launch a crypto ETF. And then next year, everyone's going to launch a senior loan ETF. So it goes in waves. 
and it's competition. Everyone tries to bring the best ideas to the table. But the thematic stuff, I think you have to have a broad understanding of why you want to use it, what's your horizon for an investment cycle, and then how best to think about it if you need to exit. And having all that pre-planned is the best measure for success. Knowing what we know now, given where interest rates are, given what's happening with global economies around the world, if you were resetting your portfolio, let's just say you were doing this at any point in time, but if you were resetting your portfolio now with ETFs to take advantage of what you see as global dynamics, I'm not asking you for individual tickers, but how would you balance that out to hedge your risk, but also optimize your potential for returns today? Where would you be looking around the world and what themes are interesting? I'll tell you what the market's thinking. It feels like there's a lot of new assets going into longer duration credit ETFs based on yield returns. There's a lot of assets going into dividend type ETFs because of dividend returns. I think how you're thinking about themes and investing, it comes down to, and the portfolio composition, it feels like the new 60-40 portfolio is really 70-30, where more fixed income and less equities based on how the market's thinking about where relative value is currently. And so what I'm seeing on my desk from institutions trading ETFs, there's a lot of interest in investment grade exposure based on returns and where the yields are setting up. So this is a trader's view. By no means don't take my advice, but I'm the guy putting the liquidity in the marketplace that allows the ETFs to work well. And based on what I'm seeing, this is what the market's saying. We will trust your perspective because you've been around this industry for a while and you travel the world talking to folks about it. So we appreciate your time. You've been super important to this industry in general, and we're really pleased to speak with you. Thanks so much, Reggie. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Boris in San Francisco, who's a Scorpio according to his Instagram profile, just like me. Boris suggests deflation this week, and we like that term given the critical CPI and PPI reports we're going to be getting in this week. According to my favorite website, deflation is the general decline of the price level of goods and services, and it's usually associated with a contraction in the supply of money and credit. Sound familiar? But deflation can also occur due to increased productivity and technological improvements. We've seen deflation across parts of the economy, like energy prices and lumber, but not in key areas that impact consumers the most, like food, shelter, and wages. And that's why the Fed's going to continue to stay aggressive on interest rates. It's also important to note the difference between deflation and disinflation. Unlike inflation and deflation, which refer to the direction of prices, disinflation refers to the rate of change in the rate of inflation. We're seeing a lot more disinflation lately than deflation, but that's also starting to change. Good suggestion, Boris from San Francisco, who's a Scorpio. We're going to be sending you some Investopedia socks. And for those of you who are still waiting for your socks, sorry for the delay. We had some supply chain disruptions and some problems sending socks to some international addresses, but we hope to have that sorted out very soon. So bear with us. We're going to let Steve Jobs take us out this week. The founder and former CEO of Apple and one of the most influential people to have ever walked the planet had a very insightful take on the power of personal computing back in 1981. And as Billy Oppenheimer points out on Twitter, it's a pretty good analogy of what artificial intelligence might do to us in the future. Here's Jobs in a 1981 interview with ABC News reporter Bob Brown. Uh, There was an article in Scientific American uh, in the early 70s which compared the efficiency of locomotion for various species of things on the planet. In other words, they measured how much energy it took for a bird to get from point A to point B compared with the energy it took a fish to get the same distance and a goat and a person and all sorts of other things. And they ranked them. And it turns out the condor won. 
Condor was the most efficient, and man came in with a rather unimpressive showing about a third of the way down the list, somewhat disappointing. But someone there had the insight to test the efficiency of man riding a bicycle. And man riding a bicycle was twice as good as the Condor, all the way off the end of the list. And what it really illustrated was man's ability as a tool maker to fashion a tool that can amplify an inherent ability that he has. And that's exactly what we think we're doing. We, th we think we're basically fashioning a 21st century bicycle here, which can amplify an inherent intellectual ability that man has and really take care of a lot of drudgery to free people to do much more creative work. Let's hope he's right, and AI and all of its offspring will do more good than harm. Thanks for joining us this week, as always, and a special shout out to the team at Betafy for including me and Investopedia at ETF Exchange. If you want to learn more about investing in ETFs, we're going to drop some of our guys in the show notes and check out the great data and insights on ETF trends as well. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.